Welcome to the Science of Psychotherapy podcast with your hosts, Richard Hill and Matthew Darlitz. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Science of Psychotherapy. I'm Matthew Darlitz, Editor-in-Chief of the Science of Psychotherapy. And as always, here with Managing Editor Richard Hill. Hello, Matt. Good to see you. This is, this is really great. Uh, the, another one of our interesting um, uh, experts with the experts with the experts uh, talk <laughs> That's right. in relation to work we're doing at uh, SAP because we've we've just uh, we're just completing the schizophrenia documentary, mm-hmm. and uh, certainly that's a part of uh, the book. Uh, although we were working through the book chronologically. I thought we we might jump to that and have a little talk about the documentary and and give people an incentive to to go in and check it out. Absolutely. Look, I've had so much fun doing this documentary series and I'm very excited about episode number three on schizophrenia and just really looking forward to doing more. We've got another couple that were sort of halfway through the, you know, the production process and uh, I'm really hoping that you're enjoying this series because um, tell you, I'm certainly enjoying enjoying um, doing the production. Richard, you do all of the, the writing and the narration. How are you finding the process? Look, it's a fascinating process, and interestingly, with the the PhD work that I'm I'm doing on uh, uh, client responsiveness, where you interview and you look for current themes and relative points, that's actually what a scriptwriter does in relation to a documentary. They go through and yeah. they look for the parts that they bring together. And we had such an interesting group. Uh, I really love the balance of this one. Um, I mean, I love all the documentaries, but but this balance of the experts and those people with lived experience. So we have four wonderful people who are going through schizophrenia, who are talking about what it feels like in the experience and blending that in with the explanations and the understandings and the sorts of knowledge base that yeah. our, our, our research experts bring is... Um, I think really creates a beautifully round picture. Yeah, fantastic. Now, I thought today what we could do is just play a few clips and just have a little bit of a a chat about what we're presenting. And I thought we'd start with, we went to the Queensland Brain Institute to have a chat to a couple of the researchers that are on the leading edge here uh, when it comes to some of the the causal variables when it comes to schizophrenia. And we talked to Professor Daryl Isles and Dr. James Kesby. Let's just play a little clip and then we'll we'll have a bit of a chat. The lateral neurons, they're the A9 dopamine neurons in the brain. They are the area that people, maybe some of your uh, subscribers have heard about, uh, are the neurons that will degenerate in Parkinson's disease. Lose 80% of them, you get Parkinson's disease. But these neurons project not exclusively, but primarily to an area of the brain called the dorsal striatum. That is where all the dopamine abnormalities are in schizophrenia. All of them, they're all in the dorsal striatum. As our cameras and technology got better, we could start to see which parts of the brain in particular those things were associated with. And that was, I think, sort of a decade, 15 years ago, was sort of a breakthrough, at least in my uh, perspective of it, of where the increased dopamine that was related with psychosis was actually located in the brain. We always thought it was this sort of motivation reward system, the limbic system we call it, because that just made sense for like salience and misattributing things that shouldn't be relevant, they become relevant and that can sort of, you know, induce some of the psychotic symptoms. Uh, But what it turned out to be was a little more sort of this direction of the brain, up in what we call the associative striatum, uh, which in a human is primarily the chordate nucleus. Um, And what that meant was that things weren't quite as simple. 
This breakthrough in understanding where the dopaminergic problem lies means that the approach to therapy and medication will have to adjust. It reminds us that we must continue to question and explore and make corrections that develops more effective treatment strategies. James Kesby explains. The problem with the associative striatum is it's a much more complex region. There's no very simple, if we put too much dopamine in here, we have this outcome with this, this little simple test. But it's, in, it's incredibly important for all the incoming cortical information that we navigate decisions with. So all these, it's dopamine projecting to this region, but it's a whole bunch of glutamatergic inputs from various cortical regions, which are the associative cortices, hence its name. And what it does is it takes all this information, different brain areas are involved in computing different things. So, ah, oh, has anything changed? No. What's the best strategy we can do to this? How are we gonna approach this? Is it relevant? All these things coming in, and then it sort of navigates the whole process to go, okay, how are we gonna act upon this? What are we gonna do? And what's our strategy moving forward? And maintains that so we can consistently make good choices. So obviously that's very complicated. So that's what we're looking at now to try and understand. So if we have too much dopamine in this region, does it impair our ability or its ability to navigate all these incoming problems from the cortex? And it gets even more sort of complex when you think about how we treat psychosis. And not all, obviously, it's a very broad disorder. It's one of the problems with these severe psychiatric illnesses, especially schizophrenia, is that there's a lot going on. It's not, it's not just dopamine. There's lots of different disorders get psychosis. So this is really, really interesting stuff, Matt. Um, yeah, it is. Now, it is. Now, in, in the, uh, uh, the academy, we've got my dangers of dopamine um, course. Yep. Now, we're going to add these, these files and these sections to that course because we've got to update it. We've got to upgrade it. Uh, in that one, I was talking about the, what was known at the time, um, which was largely that it was the mesolimbic area that yep. was getting increases in, in dopamine and that there was a sort of a, a, a competition between the mesolimbic area and the, the nigrostriatal area with the nigrostriatal area giving you Parkinsonian symptoms mm -hmm. and the mesolimbic area giving you psychosis symptoms. And so if you uh, reduced the, the dopamine for the mesolimbic area, you reduced dopamine and, uh, in the nigrostriatal and caused, uh, caused Parkinsonian systems. But for pa Parkinsonian's patients, you, you increased dopamine. That increased things in the limbic, this limbic area that caused uh, a psychosis which is quite often what happens with, with Parkinson's patients. But although the limbic area is still relevant, although it still has uh, pertinence because it's got a lot to do with salience as we talk about it, it's actually the vast um, the majority of it, as Daryl says, actually all of it is mm. occurring in this area called the associative stratum. Uh, and then we also, it, it called the chordate, also called the dorsal striatum, they're all pretty much the same sort of area. Yeah. But this is where the abnormalities and this is where there are increases in activity of dopaminergic activity that are affecting broad aspects of the, of the brain. So yeah. um, I've given a sort of a layman's uh, or, or, you know, sort of a, a practitioner's summary. We really have to get into the weeds. I've, I've got to go back and get into that stuff yeah. with the guys. And I want to research and go to some papers and really get a grasp of it. But the most important thing is that thing of it is more than we have been saying and it is a shift in perspective what it is saying, but it is still dopamine. Now, what we 
don't show in the in the fifty minute doc- documentary, but we do have as the extended interviews um, with these researchers is. A, a whole lot of other variables. We talk about, you know, vitamin D and and other things that are affecting the deve- developmental trajectory of these neurons. And so, to get all of that, you know, we, we do have the extended interviews. To you know, there, there's a lot more than just dopamine. That's what I was going to say. Yeah, well, that's important. And, and of course, uh, we we do have that uh, that that covered nicely in sort of saying it's complex and saying there's a lot more and saying that uh, some people are not having dopaminergic problems but are having um, or don't have dopaminergic abnormalities but are having psychotic system symptoms. So the dopaminergic yep. systems and the frameworks uh, and also that it's to do with GABAergic behaviour, so meaning just activity of uh, of neurons and, and areas of the brain and systems in the brain uh, connecting through the thalamus. So mm. it's this broader, this broader uh, aspect. Please, everybody uh, who's listening, this is just teasing and tempting you to to get onto yeah. Google Scholar and, <laughs> and and go have a look at the more detail because that's what I'll be doing. Um, yeah. You know, there, there's more to understand. But if you find that you're not so much interested in the technical detail, it is important to grasp the conceptual framework of these complexities and that um, you need to be looking fundamentally at dopamine, fundamentally at the uh, associative cortex to some degree to the mesolimbic things, but fundamentally that there can be all kinds of issues going on, as we know, from uh, inflammatory processes, from uh, uh, pandas, as we've talked about, Mm -hmm. um, from someone can just have a high fever and have a disruption uh, that is causing. And if you have particular developmental structures, then you are more prone, more likely to develop something like a psychosis event. But because you have those developmental structures doesn't mean you will have one. This is where the other thing comes along uh, uh, in the process of understanding it. Now, look, one of the really um, wonderful things that I got to do um, with this project was go out and talk to some people that have suffered from schizophrenia and have had a lived experience. And so we connected with uh, four amazing individuals that have been, you know, suffering from schizophrenia. And what I might do is I'll just play a little bit of a clip um, to introduce you um, to them and and then we'll have a little bit of yeah, a Yeah, there's people who've turned their suffering upside down, which is what we have to do. You, you have to, you, we live with things, don't we? There's beautiful. Now let's look at these people, glorious people. I had my first nervous breakdown in 1999 when I started hearing things. And I started feeling things that wasn't there. And um, my parents were just amazing in um, supporting me throughout my journey. So, yeah, I'm very lucky. But, um, and my family, so the rest of my family have been supportive throughout my journey. But, yeah, just hearing things and feeling things that are not there and um, being in a different dimension, but just being in this physicality, but being in a spiritual dimension. And I do believe there's I moved out of home to Brisbane. I'm from a country town called Moree. Um, so it's a big move interstate. And I think that would have been where the first big change happened for me. 
uh, with schizophrenia. Um, so I went to a psychiatrist, and but I, I guess the first thing is denial. I didn't. I just tried to push past the pain and try to live a normal life. And within a short period of time, I became paranoid, delusional, had changes in weight, changes in appetite, changes in sleep, and I had a relationship breakdown. So I ended up resigning from the pulp and paper mill, going to live with a chaplain and his wife and create a suicide intervention and prevention retreat. And then mum and dad had to fly down to Tasmania to come and bring me back to Brisbane in late 2000 for psychiatric treatment because I gave away all my inheritance, destroyed my possessions and gave away my possessions and thought I had to sacrifice myself for other people. But the early onset basically was brought about by too much stress. Um, I was going through a marriage separation. I was trying to work as much as I could. I didn't really have balance and I basically burnt out physically, mentally, emotionally, spiritually as well. Um, and then there was a component of um, meaning making. I was trying to make meaning of my experience and because I didn't really seek help, I came to my own conclusions which escalated to psychosis. Um, uh, like mania than psychosis and then you're believing in irrational, you're, you're telling yourself irrational things that you believe to be true and thankfully you know, um, you know it was intervened at that point through emergency services to bring me into hospital and my experience of that has been in and out of hospital many times particularly in the early days um, but I've had to learn and understand things for my own self. So the hospitalisations is one point. Everyone's faced hospitalisation in the past. So that, that feeling of being taken to hospital or going to hospital. Um, did you get to hospital? Yeah. Yeah, many yeah so you know, there's trauma around that with the police if they're involved or the ambulance officers in the admission. And the, the experience of hospital itself is not very nice. Um, you know, being locked up, if it's a locked ward with over 30 other people also experiencing quite traumatic and significant mental illness at the same time and waiting for the medication and the appropriate treatment to start working. Yeah. So there's that, that acute phase. Yeah. And then also the, there's probably some of the symptoms as well of schizophrenia, the hallucinations, the delusions of grandeur, building castles in the air, um, odd behaviour, you know, um, behaviour that's not accepted by society in general, um, that's normal in that sense. Um, and also a sense that you've lost your, your sense of purpose um, from being someone who could work or conduct yourself in the community and be an integral part of the community, maybe have a family. Um, I know that I ended up um, breaking off an engagement because of my mental illness, um, long distance, and yeah, and Ian's had a family but had a family breakdown. Yeah, I, it's so compelling uh, as you're listening to them. And what really struck me, Matt, was the extraordinary... Um, capacity for each of them 
to be objective. Yeah. They, they, they were able to, they've, they've got a grip of this. They're, they're, they're not, um, not that they don't have trauma, they don't have, you know, struggles struggles with it, but they've come to grips with it. And we, we talk about this in, in um, you know, insecure attachment, that, yeah. that the, the, if you can tell the story, um, if you can form a, an objective sort of narrative uh, then of your subjective experience, then you're much, much stronger. You're, you're showing you're much, much stronger. And these guys have, have uh, and there's other dialogue too uh, elsewhere, you know, how they how they learn to decide which voice is, you know, is the good voice or the bad voice and how they turn the voices into um, into to positive aspects of life. But uh, it, it, it must be an it must be an extraordinarily uncomfortable. I mean, Larry Ozawara talks about this. He, he talks about you know stressful events, and he talks about mm. the effect of it striking him because it's very often in early teen yeah. years that you have these experiences. Yeah. Although what um, was interesting about uh, this group is that you know there was a number of them that onset was, you know, in adulthood and it was a, a stress event that tipped them over the edge, so to speak. Mm. And, but they do mm. have a, like you said, they do have a good grasp, a good objective um, grasp of what is going on, except when, of course, you know, they, they're, in an, they're in the midst of an episode and then, you know, their objectivity isn't there. Um, but coming out of that, you know, that they do have a good grasp of what is going on. They've got good support network that they've created themselves. Mm. Um, so the the three uh, men there that you saw around the table, um, they have their own, uh, like a prayer group. So they're all Christians. So they support one another. They're, you know, they have a strong faith. And they just strike me as very resilient people. Um, and they're, you know, they're getting through this in yeah. uh, a wonderful way. And and Risa, who who now works in a, a, a mental health uh, mm. ward as a lived experience person uh, and just that extraordinary strength that she's brought to so when somebody's in there having an episode and they're seeing pink elephants on the walls and she's just able to say, oh, yes, yes, I, I, can, I can understand how you're seeing that. I've seen those sorts of things. And it's true and believable. We, we are having an increased appreciation of the value of including lived experience people into the exercise, into the therapeutic framework. Uh, I mean, like everything, there's a bit of a pendulum swing at the moment. So, we, you know, lived experience is better and, and education is better. But it's in the balance in between where the the people who who understand this this stuff but th- there was a fascinating yeah. thing you noticed with with Chris um with a little goatee beard because uh, because yeah. I'm looking at him and I was thinking oh wow those medications are really screwing him around so what we saw in the interview was maybe a little bit of stage fright as well because mm. uh he looked a, a little bit sort of affected um when we were interviewing him but when we got him downstairs and we were doing filming a bit of b-roll and he was um doing his you know job making some coffees, being the barista, you know, he opened right up and um, he seemed a lot more free than he, he did in front of the camera. So I think part of, I think part of that is uh, a bit of, uh, you know, stage fright in front of cameras. And that does, I have found that, you know, as we're doing these documentaries, if you stick a stick someone in front of a camera, all of a sudden, <laughs> you know. Yes. Well, this is, this is quite common. And of course, people become very strange and static and uh, slow. And of course, if he, 
some of the medications may um, slow slow him down a little bit more. So that was a really interesting thing, not to 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 give people uh, when we're working with them a sense of context. Like, okay, yeah. they've come to you, they're sitting down for the first time. Maybe it's not their medication. Maybe it's not their schizophrenia. Maybe it's not their depression or anxiety. It's just they're nervous. Uh, uh, about meeting somebody new, uh, particularly if they have a a, 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 on the shyness side of, uh, you know, not not being being scared or or cautious of novelty. So there was a lot to learn from from your experience with Chris and how he was on and off camera. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And the the other um, sort of common thing uh, with with all of them was um, this uh, ability to to make meaning out of their their circumstance. Um, And Mm -hmm. so all of them commented about about meaning-making. One of the guys, um, Ian in particular, I mean, he had been a philosophy student. (laughs) So, Mm, yeah, he was very keen to and very passionate about making meaning out of the circumstances that he's found himself in. And they they all did. And they've all found a a place where there is a, a satisfaction in understanding their place in the world and getting through this disorder. And, and this is a really big part that uh, psychotherapists and counsellors and uh, psychologists can play. They know mm, the, absolutely. We, we, we know it's a psychiatric sort of issue and we know there's sorts of uh, areas that you've got to be very careful of. But understanding the medications, we talk about that a little bit, but but uh, uh, Larry Ozawara uh, who talks to us about what the therapist uh, can do and, and how beneficial and helpful the therapist can be. Yeah. Well, why don't we just play a little bit um, about medication? And Larry Ozawara, he, he talks about this um, very succinctly. So let me just play this little bit here. So the treatment is is crucial. Um, the mainstay of treatment is really with antipsychotic medications. And those have been around since about the 50s or 60s starting with medications that were heavy in terms of side effect burden, trying to come up with from the first generation of antipsychotic medications, which had a lot of um, uh, side effects around movement disorders and the like, to what we call the second generation antipsychotics, which reduced some of the first uh, generation issues, but created issues of of their own, um, including things like weight gain and everything that comes with that. And so over time, we've sort of moved towards the second generation antipsychotics. But like I said, they're still with considerable amount of side effects for the most part. So one of the side effects of the medications that I take, quetiapine, is an increased appetite or um, hunger response. So that means you gain the kilograms if you eat when you feel hungry. The other challenge is um, with the schizophrenia, is quite chronic insomnia. So that's happened in the past and I'm suffering from it at, at the moment. So I take 60 milligrams of oxazepam uh, and it takes about four hours to go to sleep from taking the oxazepam at 8.30. So I'm just lying in my bed practicing mindfulness. And some nights, like last night, I had a great sleep. I got to sleep at 11, woke up at four, went to the toilet and then broken sleep until eight o'clock. So for me, that was a great night. Other nights I might only get two hours or none at all. Well, mainly my side effects are drowsiness and dizziness. So I sort of look like I'm falling asleep all the time and my, my 
families said that, yeah, I look like I'm just falling asleep and because I'm always drowsy, so I couldn't drive and I gained a lot of weight because that's like normal side effect and um, brain fog as well sometimes. So. There's one drug called clozapine, which is kind of like a, a wonder drug in schizophrenia. It's a very bad drug for its side effects, which is why it's limited in its use. Um, and it was developed, or sort of discovered in the 60s. But for some reason, about half of those remaining people, it really helps where no other drug does. But then obviously we still have that remaining portion that doesn't respond to any drug we have currently. And some of the work coming out now suggests that maybe those, that group of people who have schizophrenia but that don't respond to our you know, anti-dopamine typical drugs, um, maybe don't have the same dopamine problems. So what does that mean? Well, it doesn't mean that that area isn't important. It means that other things are going on that might contribute to the same phenotype we see in psychosis. So I think in, in that case, a lot of the research suggests that it's not necessarily just too much dopamine going to this region. It might be more broad, um, sort of low-level dysfunction in a lot of regions. And the cumulative effect of that is that same response as simply just putting too much dopamine in there. Yeah, fabulous. I mean, what they are, uh, I, I often say that when you look at the medications that somebody's taking, it's, um, first of all, you learn uh, a, a bit about the client, you learn something about the client and how they're being regulated by the, the, these medications, um, but you're also learning about their treating therapist, their treating uh, psychiatrist or doctor, as to what the doctor or the psycho psychiatrist is thinking, and that's really important because, um, uh, you know, there's always contention uh, between them and difference of opinion. Yeah. But um, uh, I found it enormously helpful and uh, uh, we'll, we, we've, we've, got, uh, we've got some other stuff in the academy about this, I think, in the, in the dangers that don't mean talk. So, yeah. so that's a really, uh, a really important thing for us to understand. And Larry was very succinct. Absolutely. Well, look, this is such a fascinating area and... Um, once again, I had so much fun doing this episode for our Science of Us uh, documentary series. And so I really hope that you will uh, jump across to the Academy, the scienceofpsychotherapy.net. Um, if, if you're not a member, certainly, you know, we'd love for you to be a member. And uh, in the show notes here, I'll put a, a direct link um, to this particular episode. And I do hope that uh, you enjoy listening to it and, and if you if you want some CEU points um, actually going through the extended interviews as well yes and, and certainly if you're not a member you can you can purchase this one off just a, a you know a, a small a small fee to cover things few dollars and uh, but the best thing is the extended interviews and the CEU certificate which you can uh, uh, really you know I think hold up proudly because we get a lot of Psychotherapists and counselors get a lot of people who have schizophrenic and psychosis issues, mm -hmm. uh, both recognized uh, and yet to be recognized. So yeah. it's it's a really important area for us to be aware of, particularly if you're working, uh, say, with homeless people. That that's one example where where this is a these are major issues for you to have some sensitivity towards. Yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you, everyone, once again, for joining us here on the Science of Psychotherapy podcast, and we'll catch you next time. Bye for now. Thanks for listening to the Science of Psychotherapy podcast. For more great science, go to thescienceofpsychotherapy.com.